Our teaching text this morning comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which we've already recited aloud together, and Acts chapter 5, verse 42, which I will read from now. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Bridgetown, I have to tell you how honored I am to be here, and I have committed, and you should expect your preachers to make this commitment, but I have made the commitment that I will, God help me, never stand in the pulpit and lie. Pretty decent commitment, I think, right? Never stand in the pulpit and lie. And so when I say this, I mean it. I I love your pastors. And don't look now, but you're rich to have them. And Tyler and Kirsten are faithful people. They love Jesus. Being in their home means something to me. This is not some sort of mutual admiration society. I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. Don't look now. The Spirit of the Lord is coming right here and falling in this place. And just, I didn't say this in the first service, but I just can't get away from it. I have this kind of prophetic sense that in the years ahead, buildings will be given to your church. Because, I mean, you're bursting at the seams. The life of God is here. And and it would be a desecration for buildings like this to go empty in Portland when they could be filled. And so can we just agree with me that the Lord is going to keep sending resources and buildings to Bridgetown Church? Amen. You're in this series called Community, and you've talked about community as family, and community as gift, and community as formation. You've addressed the different kinds of relationships within community, the church community. You've talked about the power of friendship. And today, Tyler has asked me to talk to you about the home, and so I'm going to hopefully put in front of you a robust kingdom vision of the home. So... As we get started here today, would you quiet your hearts? Would you close your eyes? Would you maybe even put your hand on your heart and say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. We need you, Lord. We are not here today because we are bored. We're here today because we carry the conviction deep in our bones that the Spirit of the Lord speaks. And God, when you speak, we see it on the first page of Scripture, you say, let there be light And there was. And so, Lord, into the midst of our darkness, would you speak light? Into the midst of our chaos, would you bring order? Where there is formlessness and void, would you establish us on terra firma? Would you give us feet firmly planted on solid ground in Jesus? We pray, Lord, that you would race through this place and race through our hearts. We pray your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. In the year 500 AD, a man arose in Italy, and he called the church to wake back up. In 325, the church was at her best, and they were having these theological debates, and who is Jesus, and what is the church, and what does it mean to say he's of one being with the Father? They were, their great theological muscles were being flexed, and we came up with the Nicene Creed, and they were in peak form, and 381, Constantinople, great. But for the next hundred years, they kind of fell asleep. They were exhausted, maybe. They, 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 they walked away from their faith, and so in 500 AD, St. Benedict arose in Italy 
and he started calling the church to wake back up. He called them to take vows, and many of us would know some of the vows he called them to take. Of course, the vow of charity with our resources. Open your hearts and open your pocketbooks and, and open your homes. Let's be the charitable people of God and let's care for one another and lift each other's burdens. Absolutely the vow of charity with our money. We would know that he would have called them to take the vow of chastity with their sexuality. Like your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Be clean. Be pure. Be faithful in your relationships and in your commitments. Live the vow of chastity. Be clean. We would know that he would have called them to take the vow of obedience to the Bible. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Those vows, sure. But what most people don't know is that the very first vow that St. Benedict called the church to take was the vow of stability in place. Stabilitas. Find your people, find your place, put down roots, and try to die where you are. That's what stabilitas was, the vow of stability in place. And it's shocking to me that the very first vow, especially in this transient age in which we live, the very first vow that the saints of old were called was to take the vow of stability in place. Now, if the vow of stability matters, how do we practice it? Let's become practical today. Let's ask an important question. Great. We make the mental ascent to the vow of stability mattering. Well, how do we practice it? I'll say to you today that the home is really the beginning of learning to live the vow of stability. Where you put your head down tonight, be it the dorm room, be it the apartment that you're renting for an obscene amount of money, be it a home that you live in or a community, an intentional living community that you're in, wherever you lay your head, if you haven't learned to nurture that place, if you haven't learned to start in your smallest concentric circle of authority and power to nurture a place dedicated to God, you are not going to be able to live the vow of stability very long. So today, a robust vision for the home in the kingdom of God. Home is poignant for all of us. I, I, I can imagine that all of us carry memories. Maybe it was a grandmother's home. You, you remember that old wallpaper, you know, that crushed carpet underneath your feet and the smell of the kitchen. Some of you have great memories of a home place. Others of us have difficult memories. It's okay to just tell the truth in church. That home, the, maybe one of the greatest gifts God could have given us has also been used as one of the greatest ways to strike us down. It, there's complexity there, but We've got to talk about the home today. So I'll say as my opening thesis that the home has always been a gateway through which the kingdom of God moves into the earth. The home is a gateway through which the kingdom of God moves into the earth. Now, in scripture, where do we start to see this theme of home? It's early. Genesis 2, you get the sense that Adam and Eve really love where they are. And they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And surely you know they had this herb garden over here with the little creek running through the back. And it was just eruptions of life and blessing and peace. And, and you know they loved watching the sun rise over here with their little morning cu cup of stump town. And you know, I, I hear that's what the kids love these days out here. I went there. Anyway. Um, and, and just the, the, 
the joy of, and you, you see in Genesis 2 that there's this ancient, almost primordial sense in all of us to long for a place to call home. Moses, the great prophet, where does he come from? Where does his story turn on a hinge? Well, they were slaves in Egypt, and they, Pharaoh says, kill all the little Hebrew boys, and Moses' mom and sister go to work behind the scenes conspiring to make that little wicker basket, and they float him down the Nile. He gets caught in the reeds, and Pharaoh's daughter goes out for her morning cleanup, and, and, and all of a sudden she hears this little boy crying out in the reeds and sends out a servant, and Moses, the little boy, gets brought into Pharaoh's home. And he gets a world-class education that, put this in your pipe and smoke it, devil, is going to end up leading the people of God out of Egypt. You see that home is this place where you're nurtured and you're, you're meant to be brought up, this incubator, this greenhouse of life where you can grow and flourish and be transplanted out into the world to do good work. The widow of Zarephath was the one who brought in the prophet Elijah into her home. The, the poorest woman out in the Gentile territory is able to take in and rehome the most powerful man of God from the Holy Land, and she leads him through a three-year drought. Home matters. Mary found out she was pregnant, and Jesus is coming, and he will save God's people from their sins. And what does she do? She runs to her cousin Elizabeth's home and is rehomed for three months, tucked away with someone who she knows is safe and wise and prayerful and decent, someone who can help her nurture her dreams and carry her dream forward until God brings it to fulfillment. Home matters. And then Jesus is the word that is rehomed and made flesh among us. He tabernacles among us. You see home, this concept, all throughout Scripture. And the early church, it tells us in Acts 2.46, that daily their rhythm was they, they attended the temple together and then they broke bread in their homes. Church and home. Temple and table. Church and home. Temple and and table. And the question I want to ask today is what is the purpose of the home? What is the purpose? What, how does the home serve the ongoing work of God in the world? I'm going to say three simple things today. There's a lot that could be said. I'm going to say three things and tell you a couple stories and we'll pray and we'll beat the Baptists to lunch. Amen? <laughs> Can you just hang with me? All right. One, three purposes about the home and the ongoing redemptive work of God. One, the home is meant to be a place of hospitality. Can you say hospitality? The home is meant to be a place of hospitality. If you turn in the ancient text to Genesis 18, there is a very important, very iconic story. Abraham and Sarah are old and barren. They are coming to their end. They don't have anyone to pass the story on to. They've accumulated an inheritance with no one to take it. And Abraham and Sarah are sad in their old age. They're ready to quit. You can sense their, the energy and the momentum of their stories is coming to a halt. And one day Abraham goes out to the, the edge of his tent and the tent flap is open because in, in that arid place they want the air to flow through. So he goes out and he sees three Men, three visitors. And he's got a decision to make in this moment. Do I just ignore them? Do I raise up my warriors and run them off because maybe they're a threat? Do I just kill them right here on the spot? What do I do? Do I ignore them? Do I, do I exercise violence? Or do I bring them in? And, and Abraham brings them in 
What feels like a normal day, just another throwaway moment in a long life, Abraham makes a decision that becomes crucial for him and for Sarah into the future and crucial for our own stories. They welcome the three men in. And as you read on, they're surprised that the angel of the Lord is in this group. And the angel of the Lord comes in and is, is seated. Abraham says, "Get the, you know, kill the fattened calf, bring the bread, bring the water. And he, he goes to scramble and Sarah scrambles and they're going to host. They're going to open their home to strangers. And in this moment of opening their home to strangers, the angel of the Lord says, this time next year, there's going to be diapers changed in this tent. And Sarah laughs behind the, you know, she's in the kitchen and she hears, Ugh. you know, yeah, right. We, I, I know my husband, there ain't going to be babies, and like, trust me, it's over. And, oh, next year I'll swing back by and, and we'll have a little dedication ceremony. There's going to be crying and laughter and diapers in this house. Mark it. What we're meant to see in Genesis 18 is that the simple act of hospitality is seen as the act by which something is birthed inside of us. That we are now beginning to be enlarged by the work of the Spirit of God. What seems like a normal act where we could just a throwaway moment. We bring people in and somehow the angel of the Lord shows back up. And, and something is birthed in us and life begins to burst. And life begins to pop in joy and strength. Hospitality matters in the scriptures. Hebrews 13, if that's Genesis 18, Hebrews 13 says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters and do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Don't look now, but in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and right here in our own stories, when we open our hearts and open our homes up to people that are different than us, the strangers, something happens. Jesus... We see this in his life. He shows up. He is the God of the dinner party. Robert Karras, the great New Testament theologian, says in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. That's the gospel of Luke. Jesus eats. Amen. <laughs> they, they accuse the Lord of glory, like the, the preeminent one, the one who was and is and is to come, the God made flesh dwelling among us. They accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. How much do you have to be eating and drinking and celebrating with people and dancing and laughing and playful? We think Jesus was this kind of really rigid, repent of your sins and you gotta, you gotta hate your life and then I'll take you to heaven. Jesus is happy. Open up the next bottle. I mean, his first miracle, the wedding at the Cana of Galilee. Hey, yeah, get the water. We, we got this. We got this. How much does God love life to sit around the table? And Luke's gospel is just an absolute dinner party waiting to happen. In fact, Marcus Bart, the son of the great theologian Karl Bart, Marcus says, in approximately one-fifth of the sentences in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, Meals play a conspicuous role. 20% of two major texts in the New Testament. Meals play a conspicuous role. I'll just say this. In Scripture, the home has a sneaky way of hosting heaven right here in the middle of earth. We pray, you know, make us the New Testament church. Just pour out your spirit. 
Well, if we're reading the text rightly, what's going to happen is the spirit will fall as we come to church and we go back home and we just live in those spaces and we say, come Holy Spirit. And we bring in strangers and you look up 10 years later and we're filling up churches all over Portland. Why? Because the people of God were hospitable. Open your homes, open your hearts. The angel of the Lord knows how to show up. God will do the work. You just set the table and let Jesus come in by his spirit and host. And I'm telling you, Portland will be singing the praises of Jesus in the decades to come. Don't look now, but the simple act of hospitality is the way in which the spirit of the Lord races into our most intimate places and brings life. Can you say amen? The home as a place for hospitality. Second thing, the home is meant to be a place of discipleship. Can you say discipleship? Acts chapter 18, we get this story about a really sophisticated uh, intellectual of the day. And his name's Apollos. A Jew named Apollos came to Ephesus. And he was an educated man from Alexandria. And he knew the scriptures very well. Apollos had been taught in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great power. He taught this truth about Jesus and he'd written articles and journals and he'd been on CT and he'd, he'd gone to all the conferences and Apollos was a baller, but, but, uh, but he only knew about John's baptism, it says. His, his knowledge was limited. He was really great at a certain aspect of the faith, but he only knew about John's baptism, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and Priscilla and Aquila, a lady and a man, an older couple likely, were there, and they, they saw something in this guy. So they invited him into their... They invited him into their home, and he probably stayed there for weeks or months, And there they gave him a better understanding of the way of God. They didn't didn't rebuke him. They didn't embarrass him. They said, good job, Apollos. A man from Alexandria, you've been to all the great libraries and you've obviously done your homework and I love your emphasis on John's baptism. Excellent. One thing. Let me tell you about the way of Jesus. Let me help you get captivated with the true story, with the total picture. Hey, Apollos, good job and... And Priscilla and Aquila beefed up his knowledge and they helped him understand his way into the life of the kingdom. And one of the things that I love about this text is that it shows us that the power of the home is not just reserved for married people raising young biological children. Can Can we just say home is a very broad category? And very often, I, I, I hate what has been done to people who find themselves single or they have said, you know, I just want to be celibate. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, I want to live for Jesus and give all of my strength to the kingdom of God. Very often, we have made the family into an idol in the American church, okay? And I'm saying that as a man who's married with three children. Praise God for the family. But we have idolatrized, if you will. We have made it something that is like, if you really want to be successful in the kingdom of God. And I I just repent on behalf of all of you who have felt that sting, okay? So there's all kinds of ways. This is why convents 
and monasteries have been so powerful the last couple thousand years because people saying there's lots of different ways to devote our lives to the kingdom of God. There's lots of different ways to find intimacy. There's lots of different ways to find family within the body of Christ. And friends, I want to just say to you, some of you are really building beautiful, intentional communities here. And Apollos was trained by Priscilla and Aquila in their home. And I want you to know that your kingdom work matters whether or not you have children. Can you say amen today, church? We need to broaden out the categories for what it looks like to have the home be a place of discipleship. The question that I want to ask you today is, have you dedicated your place to be a place for the glory of God to dwell? Have you dedicated your place? Now, I'll just give you some examples. One, you know, you read the story in Exodus about the people of God in Egypt and they're about to go out and the angel of the Lord comes and the word comes from God. Have them put the blood over the doorposts, right? And the angel of the Lord will pass over. And there was life in those homes. And so get some anointing oil. And we do this at our home. And we have anointed the doorposts. And some of you go, that's superstitious. And well, you know, I'm, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. Michael Scott, you know, anyone? Uh, anyway, the great prophet Michael Scott. Some of you are like, where's that in the scriptures? Just keep reading. Just keep reading. No. What you're saying is, Lord, you have given us this place. And we give you thanks for this place and every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above in whom there is no shadow of turning. And so we anoint this place and we say, this place is holy ground devoted unto God. And we go to our children's rooms and we put the door on the post, or the oil on the doorpost. And I anoint my little kids with oil and I say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this place will be a place of great sleep. Hey, 12 hours, Jesus, get them real good, God, hey. Never been more charismatic than when I'm praying for sleep over my kid. <laughs> Lord, thank you for dreams and visions of Jesus. Thank you that all the days of their lives, this place will be a place where our kids will have memories of hearing the voice of the Spirit. Isaiah 30, 21, if you get a little bit to the right or to the left, you'll hear the voice of the Spirit behind you saying, no, this is the way. Walk ye in it. And Lord, for Lillian and Wilson and Wakely, let this place be a place where they can flourish. And when their friends come into our house and their friends who don't know Jesus, we pray you'd get them real good, Lord. Bring the, call them out of darkness and into marvelous light. Lord, change the future of your kingdom. As people come into this home, let them feel the presence of the Spirit. I want to ask you, have you dedicated the place that you dwell to be a place for the glory of God to dwell? Home as a place of discipleship. Will you allow me to give just a brief word to the parents? We've established that you don't just have to have biological children to make it right, okay? Can I also talk to the parents for a minute? I want to ask you, have you created a daily liturgy in your home? And this isn't just for parents, okay? But let me talk to the parents. All of you listening, have you created a daily liturgy? Some, some of you are like, what's a liturgy? A liturgy is just an order of events, rhythms, routines. We are the growthies and we do this. And so I'll tell you a bit about our daily liturgy in our home so you can kind of have your imagination provoked for what your daily liturgy looks like. We live out in the country, about a 20 minute drive into school for the kids. So five days a week, do as we get up, it's the scramble, it's 5.45 a.m., we're making pancakes and toast and packing lunches and getting clothes, where are my shoes, and and everyone's at peak form, and, and we finally get in the car and we've got a 20-minute drive. 
the first thing I do is I turn on two chapters of the Bible and I press play and I say, kids, hear ye the word of the Lord. And I press play and we'll get two chapters out of Deuteronomy. We'll get two chapters out of Philippians. We'll get two chapters out of the Psalms. And here's what I do after the two chapters are done. I press pause and I say, now what did you hear? And everyone has to answer. And when we started this, Lillian would answer our firstborn, you know, 10 and 2 on the steering wheel, very responsible. She's, she could lead a small third world country. Lillian's very responsible. And she would say something profound. And Wilson, her younger brother, would say, what Lillian said. <laughs> and I said, no, you can't do that. That's lazy. I want to know, what did you hear, Wilson? And then Wilson would respond, and then our baby boy, Wakely, he's 11 now. What did you hear, Wakely? And we talk back and forth, and I get to use some of my Bible nerd stuff. And, well, the context of that passage, and the Greek word there, and they're like, shut up, Dad. And so we just have great, great, about 10 minutes of Scripture and conversation around Scripture. And then we turn left on Highway 83. And then we come to Northgate Road and we turn right. And when we turn on Northgate Road, whoever, whichever kid is riding shotgun, it, three kids, three-day rotation, they rotate, you know, shotgun, front seat. Whoever's riding shotgun, when we turn right on Northgate Road, they say, this then is how the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. And we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And all of us together are praying. And then at the end of that, we're about turning left on Voyager Road. And I say, and now may the Lord our God bless you and keep you, Lillian. And may he make his face to shine upon you, Wilson, and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift his bright, smiling countenance upon you, Wakely, Daniel, Grothy, and may he grant all three of you peace today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. And we pull up to the parking lot of school and I say, now, go be missionaries of the love of Jesus. Every room you step into, you're the leader. You're in charge. And what your power is meant to do is find the person at lunch who's sitting alone and bring them into the center of the story and make them the hero by lunch end. You are missionaries of Jesus. Now go be blessed, be fruitful, have fun, go crush it, ask the best questions, amen. And they race out rolling their eyes. <laughs> but deep in their spirits, they know who they are. Daily liturgy in the morning, daily liturgy at night. We come home from soccer practice and basketball. We sit down at the table and we say, highs, lows, and haws. What was your best moment of the day? You laughed. You just, you know, what, what, what was your favorite memory? What was your worst memory of the day? What made you cry? What broke your heart? What scared you? Lows. Ha, where did you just laugh out loud? Like highs, lows, and haws. And all five of us have to say it. And, and, then, and then we just start praying for people. Who do we need to pray for based on what we've just heard? And friends, I'm telling you, we sat at our dinner table six years ago and we got out anointing oil and right in the center of our circular table, we anointed it with oil and we said, Lord, let everyone who sits at this table know the love of Jesus. Let everyone who sits at this table hear a prophetic word from the Spirit that only they needed in that moment. Lord, let soft hearts sit around this table. Let hope rise at this table. Friends, I'm asking you, have you thought through dedicating your place as a place for the glory of God to dwell? And have you built routines that will, that will lead toward a life of discipleship? I sat this week on Wednesday with a man in our church named Sean, and Sean is 60. And he's married to Michelle. And six months ago, they showed up, Sean and Michelle, with their son, Chris. And Chris is in a wheelchair. He's 31. And Chris's wife, Lola, she's 30, I think. And 
Lola was born in Uzbekistan and she was born without legs and they threw her in a trash can. Because over there, the superstitious deal, like, oh, if she's born without legs, she's cursed. And where she was from in this region, they thought she was cursed and so they were getting rid of her. And some missionaries were there and found this baby crying in a trash can and took her out and adopted her. Brought her to the United States. That's Lola. Every Friday night, Lola rolls in with her husband, Chris, who's 31, both in their wheelchairs. And so I said, Sean, Dad, 60, can I meet with you? Because I want to hear your story. So we met this week at Loyal Coffee where Tyler and I get our coffee when we're together in the springs. And I said, Sean, tell me the story. And he said, when our kids were little, he he said, uh, actually in high school, Chris was this brilliant multi-sport athlete. Just genius, 17 years old, you know, on the pitch and on the court, he was a beast, hard worker. And he said, when they were young, we sat around our kitchen table and we said, what what are our family values? And all the kids spoke up and they came up with five agreed upon family values. And two of those values were, we pray for people. We're the growthies, we pray for people. We're the statins, we pray for people. So they said, one of their values, we pray for people. The second value is we choose joy. Just, we just keep choosing joy. And so I'm sitting with Sean and he said, when Chris was 17, our son, we took him in for a routine surgery. He, he had a little bit of scoliosis in his spine. Not bad. He was still a great athlete, could play, but they just needed to clean something up in his spine. And so they took him in and the doctor said, it's going to be about an hour surgery. Real simple. I do this all the time. I'll be back out. Well, an hour went by and then two hours went by. And then three hours went by and and Sean and Michelle were sitting in the waiting room just being human, getting scared. How's our boy? And finally the doctor came in about three and a half hours later and tears running down the doctor's face. And he said, Sean and Michelle, can you come into the lobby? Come out in the hall. We've got to find a new place. And they said immediately the doctors got tears and they thought, is our son alive? What happened? They went out into the hall and the doctor said, I promise you, I've done this a hundred times and it's always worked, but something happened and I clipped a nerve and, and your son is paralyzed for the rest of his life. Chris will never walk again. And the doctor fell on the floor in the hallway, just sobbing. And you know who got on the floor next to him? Sean and Michelle. And they said, we pray for people. And we choose joy. And so they laid hands on this doctor and the doctor stopped. He goes, what are you doing? And they said, we pray for people. And you're obviously heartbroken right now. And so they said, spirit of the living God, would you take care of Dr. So-and-so? And would you comfort him? And would you help him? Would you strengthen him and let him know that it's going to be okay? Their hearts are broken. And somehow, some way, they were able to pray for someone whose heart was broken. Because in the home, around the table, they had decided that we are this family and we choose joy and we pray for people. And I'll just say it to you this way. A disciple is created in a home before a disciple is needed in the world. It took them 10 years to be ready to pray for a doctor on, a, on the floor in a hallway at the hospital. Day after day, meal after meal, prayer time after prayer time. A disciple is created in a home long before a disciple is needed in the world. And so I'm asking you, Chris, okay, good news. Chris is 31 
and he's just finishing up his Masters of Divinity, and he's getting ready to get hired as a chaplain at Children's Hospital in Colorado because he knows about what happens in hospitals. Friends, can you say amen to a disciple being created in a home that is now needed in the world? Amen? The home is a place of hospitality, absolutely. The home is a place of discipleship, sure. The third thing that I want to say is that the home is meant to be a place of healing. I say this with much tenderness and with much trepidation because some of you go, yeah, I wish my home was a place of healing. It's, a, it's always a travesty when the enemy seizes what was meant to be a gift from God and turns it into a curse. It's always a tragedy when the people who were supposed to protect us the most actually end up wounding us the greatest. So I say this with all tenderness, but I, I, will, I will stand on this, that the home in God's heart was meant to be a place of healing. My dad was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, August 30th, 1955. He's 68 years old. He's 6'6 six, six with a full head of white hair. I'm 6'1 and bald. I don't know what happened, but he, I love my dad to death, and he's a man of God. And at five years old, he was the only child. He, he, was, he was born late in life to his parents late in their lives, and he was the only child in the home, and his parents individually were great, just great. Melvin Joseph Grothy, my grandpa, served America uh, in the military, was in Berlin on the day the war ended in 1945. Helped raise the flag of freedom, helped empty out concentration camp. Decent, hardworking, calloused hands, had every tool. There was nothing Melvin Joseph Grothy couldn't do, an honorable man. And then he retired from the military and moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and started working in the oil fields, drilling wells. Just hardworking man. Velma Ida Grothy, my grandmother, five foot eleven, elegant woman. She was one of the first women in American history to be able to serve in the military. God forgive us for all those years of saying half of the population can't contribute. Frankly, they do a better job than the rest of us. And she was there in the Pentagon working her tail off, taking messages from the war front and translating them and giving them to the generals in Washington. And the generals would weigh in on, on battle strategy and she would translate it and send it to the war front in Germany where my grandpa was. And great, great people, both of them, but they did not know how to be married. And they fought, and they fought, and they fought. And I'm talking sitting at the dinner table, my five-year-old dad. All of a sudden, someone would say a crossword, and the table is flipped over, and butter knives are used as weapons and forks, and they're fighting each other. And my little five-year-old dad dives on the pile, trying to peel his parents off each other, shouting, can't we just work this out? His dad slept in his own room, his mom slept in her own room, and my little five-year-old dad had his own room, and he laid, and he said, every night I cried myself to sleep, looking at the ceiling, and, and he'd never been to church, and he, he, but something, he said, something out there, this isn't right, all I want is a happy family one day. My dad cried himself to sleep every night. Nine years old, he got up on a Sunday morning and did what some of his friends at school were doing, which is they would go to a church, this thing called a church. So my dad got dressed, and he walked two miles through Tulsa, to the church and walked in the back. It's about, the sanctuary is about this size. I've been there many times. And nine-year-old David Grothy walks in the back and Christian, the, the worship leader of that church, the Christian of uh, Sheridan Assembly, sees this little boy in the back and stops the rehearsal and says, young man, come here, come here. 
and my dad comes down front. He says, what's your name? I'm David. Who are you here with? He said, me. How did you get here? I walked. Oh, we are so glad you're here today, David. This is my wife, LaVon, and I, and we sit right here. We're going to finish the rehearsal. Come on up on stage. We'll finish the rehearsal. We'll get you a little breakfast. You sit with us, and then we'll drive you home after church. That was in an America when you could do that. <laughs> and God forgive us for losing that. Take us back to that age where we could actually honor one another. And they sure enough did it. They drove him home, got him some food, took him home. And they said, hey, do you want to be in the kids' children's choir, the children's choir? We've got Easter coming up, and we're going to sing an Easter special. And he goes, yeah. So they will pick you up tonight at 5 o'clock. They, twice in a day? Are you serious? Like, like let's go slow. Let's go slow. <laughs> Picked him up, took him to the choir rehearsal, and then drove him back home. And in a day, my dad was swept up into this family. And the next Sunday, someone picked him up and drove him to church and then took him home. And just day after day, this nine-year-old boy is swept up into the family of God. At 15, my dad's dad called him. He said, son, we've got to drill a new well tonight, and I'll be home late. You and your mom have dinner. I love you. Still fighting in the home, disunity in the home. They were going to get divorced, but my 12-year-old dad talked him out. of Like, dad, you can't get divorced. Stop. 15 years old, they eat dinner that night, mom and son, and... They go to the front door, and there's a police officer and a chaplain there. They said, is this the Grothy home? Yes. Can we come in? Would you sit down? Tonight, your husband and your father was drilling a new well with eight other men, and there was an explosion, and all nine men were killed. We are so sorry. They walked out, and 30 minutes later, you know who was at the front door? Vep and Levon, Elvis from Sheridan Assembly of God. And they came in and they said, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil for God is with you. And so are we, David. He's 15. They've known him for six years. This is one of their guys. They've had him in their home. And frankly, when my dad would go into Vep and Levon's home, he would see what a home could be. Hospitality, discipleship, healing. And they circled him up and they walked him through the valley of the shadow of death. 19 years old, my dad's mom called him. He's in college. And she said, David, I've got this terrible headache. I think you should, can you come take me to the hospital? I... He drives across town, gets his mom, goes to the hospital, takes her in. They start doing scans. And they say, ma'am, you have a stage four brain tumor. You're going to die within weeks. You need to go get your affairs in order. And my dad drove his mom home that day, heartbroken. And sure enough, within weeks, he puts her in the ground. He's 19 years old and he's an orphan. You know who's at the front door? Vep and LaVon Ellis and Frank and Kay Reeder and all of these people within shared an assembly of God who'd had my dad in their home. And what my dad found is that these people actually knew how to settle an estate because 19-year-olds don't know how to settle estates and sell homes and sell cars and do all of this stuff. And they said, David, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil for God is with you. And so are we. And they hugged him and they prayed for him. And at 22, when my dad married my mom, you know who stood on that stage and officiated that wedding? Vep and LaVon Ellis. And my dad is 68 years old, and you know how old Vep Ellis is? He's 80. 
and they still play golf and they laugh like little schoolgirls. <laughs> and they're best friends to this day. Why? Because the home was meant to be a place of healing. And the church was meant to be a place of healing. Which is why the early church went from church to their homes and they broke bread. And then they opened the scriptures. And then they went back home and they broke bread. And they opened their hearts. And they opened their pocketbooks. And why did the church spread in the Roman Empire rapidly? Because hospitality was the norm. Friends, I'm here to tell you today, Portland is dying for you to be the people of God. Portland is aching. They don't know how to articulate it. They don't know how to say it. But I'm telling you, especially in this post-COVID moment, we are lonelier than we've ever been. America, we have the deepest pockets of any society that has ever lived. And we are the most relationally bankrupt society in the history of the world. And so... What? People come together. In this room, we have Democrats and Republicans. We have black, white, and brown. We have rich and poor. We have educated and uneducated. And the thing that unifies us is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Where else are you going to find that deal on all of planet Earth? So we come together and we worship and then we go home and we create holy ground and we say, come Holy Spirit. And I promise you, if you will stack decades doing this stuff, if you'll sign up for this, if you'll anoint your place as holy ground and say, come Holy Spirit, if you'll open your hearts and your pocketbooks, if you'll do this, you'll look up in 20 years and you will see the kingdom of God come and the will of God having been done right here in Portland as it is in heaven. Can you say amen? As we come to this moment, I want to put in front of you this quote from Eugene Peterson. Eugene, at the end of his life, I spent 10 years with him with him just discipling me, mentoring me, provoking me, making me write papers and read books. And I went out when Eugene was 85 and I knew it would be my last trip to his house. And I said, Eugene, tell me one more time. You've been a pastor for 50 years. Tell me one more time, what is the church? I just need to hear it from your mouth before you go. And he said, the church is a colony of heaven in a country of death colony of heaven in a country of death. Bridgetown, it's all over you to be this people already. You're doing it. It's working. Keep going. But the call is to be a colony of heaven in a country of death. You have that here at the church and you create those pockets in your homes. Talk to me in 20 years.